Beginning in verse 1, we'll read all the way to the end. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Seven, this is where we will pick up this week. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Man, there's a lot of weight there. Whew. Uh, So... I'm going to ask the Lord to help us in this. Let's pray with me one more time. Father, as we seek the truth in your word, as we seek to understand your eternal decree, understand the warning that you give, but also understand the blessing that can be received. Father, open our eyes. um, Encourage our hearts and give us uh, understanding that we might... Take what we receive and live by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. And that's going to be the uh, sort of the pattern for 7 through 12. Is I could see three distinct sections in this. And the first one is a decree from 7 to 9. And then verse 10 through, well, halfway through 12, a warning. And then the last sentence, a blessing. Spend more time on the decree more than likely. Um, so there's no, uh, there's no, it does not attribute to David, but we know from reading the New Testament, uh, I believe in Acts 4, uh, the apostles attribute Psalm 2 to David, sort of sealing the deal for us there. Uh, there's something that I want to make sure we understand, and I mentioned this last week, maybe the when we were in Psalm 1. When we are in prophetic psalms, which this is one, this is a psalm, a prophetic psalm about Jesus, we also have to understand that there is a immediate context and application when it was written, typically. Uh, and so... There is an aspect of this that can be applied to David, and there's an aspect of this that can be applied to Jesus, the son of David. Okay, um, Because we can't stay here all night, I, I'm shying away from us talking about the David aspect uh, and lean more towards the son of God aspect. Okay, And so just understand that, that there is... Implic- and as I was reading and preparing and he- reading the commentaries and thinking, man, I'm not smart enough to understand the crossovers and the implications as they are. But uh, what we do want to understand as best we can, Lord willing, uh, is what this is telling us about uh, the Son of God and his rule and his reign over the nations. Okay, so. Just as a reminder, because it's it's so good, I want to read 1 through 6 again and just tell you in maybe two or three sentences a recap. Why do the nations rage? Now, we understood nations as not uh, ex- as more or less excluding Israel in, its, in the immediate context. We talked about it this morning. Um, Gentiles, the east to the west, you know, the rest of the world. Sort of the implication here. Why Why is the rest of the world plotting against Yahweh? Why are they raging against uh, God? Why do these peoples, again the nations, plot in vain? Okay, well that tells us something. They're plotting, they're raging, is empty, it's hollow. And we'll understand why as we read on. 
And it says the kings of the earth, so the leaders of these peoples, of these nations, the leaders, the rulers, set themselves, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now we talked about the anointed pointing to, no, I, I think all versions probably have a capital A there, yay, capital A for anointed, maybe, verse 2. Okay, so again, appointing. David wasn't anointed. We talked about that. All, all the prophets, all the priests, all the kings were anointed, selected, uh, anointed with oil. But what they were looking for was the capital A anointed one, the anointed, the Messiah. And that's what that word is, Messiah. They're looking for him to come. Uh, now, these, these rulers, these nations are are plotting against Yahweh and his anointed. And they say, let us burst their bonds and cast away their cords from us. Let us be untethered to God. Let us be untethered from his word. Let us not be bound and fettered to his authority. Remember we used the word autonomy? They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to self-rule, self-govern. We talked about this last time, that we are a na- an autonomous nation, but we hope that we're not so autonomous that we separate ourselves from the rule and law of God, right? We're not, if, if we separate ourselves, if we are completely autonomous, then we make ourselves our own ruler, our own God. That's what these nations are attempting to do when they say, let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. And then we have God's response. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. And we use the illustration of it's he's laughing in mockery. He is mocking the nations because they can do him no harm. If we remember in Psalm 1, verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They cannot stand against. They can, they can set their schemes, and that's why it's all in vain. Is because God cannot be moved. He who sits in the heavens, meaning he's enthroned. It is his throne room where he is. He is king of all. A lot of crossover in the things that we spoke about this morning, too. Um, so he who sits in the heavens in his throne laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, meaning he mocks them with his laughter. Um, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then we looked at Acts 4 and saw... The apostles, upon after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the apostles are now starting to be persecuted by the leaders. But not just the leaders of the Gentile nations, but also the nation of Israel is raging against them. Um, let me just read it for us so we make sure we hear it. They all come together after their first bout of persecution from the Israelite leaders. And it says, And when they heard, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, He who has all rule and authority, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. End of quote. They continue in their prayer. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the Lord and his anointed, his chosen, his Messiah, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, leaders of Gentile nations, leaders of Gentile peoples, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all of them, they did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, Israel, um, 
Herod, Pilate, they're plotting, they're raging, they set themselves against the, the Messiah, but what does God do? He sits in the heavens and laughs and mocks them because back in Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They did exactly what he wanted them to do, and it set Christ on the hill of Zion. Alright, so what's that mean? Well, let's get a little bit more into that. That's where we are here in verse 7. So, a decree, a warning, a blessing. The, the decree starts in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Okay, so decree. What's decree? Decree, that, that Hebrew word takes many shapes throughout the Old Testament. If you read Psalm 119, it's translated statute almost every time. In most ways through the Old Testament, it's translated statute, uh, perhaps, uh, I think, precept. Um, but the way that we're seeing it, and this is in the Strong's Concordance and its definition, a decree as being an, enact, an enactment, an appointment, something set eternally by God. Uh, Matthew Henry says this decree is an eternal decree. And it was made before all worlds and cannot be altered. I will tell of the decree. The Lord, and here it is, the Lord said to me, You are my, quote, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, there, there's, man, there's just so much here. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. You are my son, okay? So we're have we're understanding. Remember, we're not really thinking about David. We're just going to think about Jesus and uh, the Son and the Father. Um, we understand that there is a relationship within the Trinity, the Father and the Son. That relationship has existed from all eternity, forever. All right, it's always been. Seriously, it's always been. The Father and the Son, along with the Spirit. So, in this decree, it says, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today, I have begotten you. Alright, so that's the decree. Now, this is, we're going to see it in a few other verses. But here, here's what we have to understand. The Lord said to me, You are my Son. We're speaking about the Son of God. Today, I have begotten you. What he doesn't mean is that today you have been born. He doesn't mean today you have been born again. Now, there's something you've got to keep your ears perked up about. If you're listening to the TV or the radio and you hear someone say that Jesus was born again, turn the dial. Go to the next channel. There, there is, there's, there's a false teaching out there. Uh, that Jesus was a man born, but then basically didn't become who he was until he was born again when the Spirit descended. Just throw it out the window. From all eternity, he's always been the Son. But what we understand this to mean is not that he was born, but that he is the only true Son of the Father. Okay? Now, if you're a Christian, you're a son of God, right? But your sonship is through adoption. You've been adopted into the family of God. John says that Jesus is the only begotten son, the only son from the Father, right? Not born, not created, but he is the true son of God and always has been. Um, so let's, let's look at some verses because this is everywhere. This, this is a theme that is everywhere. I want to start in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
uh, chapter 7, verse 12 through 14. Now this is God's covenant with David, okay? God's covenant with David. And he says this in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? Okay, keep that phrase in your mind, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. Verse 13. He, this offspring of David, shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. Alright, now go to Romans 1. So the two things I want you to have in your back of your mind was the the offspring of David who's going to uh, sit on the throne. He shall come from your body, from your body, David. Uh, but he will also be to me like a son and a king, and established on the throne of a kingdom forever. Romans one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. According to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now, if we stop there, that'd be kind of cool. But the most important part comes here in following. He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ. So, here, here's the complication of, of Psalm 2 in, the, in this verse. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Well, we've established the Son has always been the Son. So what is this, today I have begotten you? Why today? What does it mean today? One more passage. Acts 13. And Romans 1 hinted at it, right? Probably picking that up. Acts 13. Again, we have the use of an Old Testament passage by a New Testament writer to help us understand. Acts 13, starting in 26. This is Paul, yeah. Paul doing his thing, preaching the gospel. He says this, Brothers, son of the family of Abraham... And those among whom you among whom fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. That would be Jesus. And though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. I'll go back to 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Sounds a lot like what we're reading in Acts 4. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that God promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, 
As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So if we wanted to pinpoint the declaration of today, it would be the day of his resurrection. His pro- it, is, it is sort of the unsealing of this eternal decree. Right? It is an eternal decree, and it had been, and the reality of it had been from all eternity. But it had been unsealed and proclaimed when the tomb was empty. Okay? So we have Jesus, or we have the Father setting his king uh, on Zion, or if you have the NASB, I believe it's. Establishing, I can't remember the word, but sort of very um, solid. And then this decree of him being being declared as the son, the only begotten, made known in his resurrection. Now, let me catch my notes here. Install. Install. Yeah, there it is. Install. Sounds very kingly, royal-like. Um, so, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, he then continues his statement, the father speaking, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage or inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possessions. Now, that sort of concludes this triangle that I wanted you to see. In 7 and 8. I'm sorry. Yeah, 7 and 8. So we have the word son, begotten, and an 8, inheritance. Sounds very similar to sort of Hebrew-Israel tradition of the firstborn receiving the inheritance of the father, right? And what does the son... what? What does the father have? He has it all. He has it all. And who is inheriting it all? The son. So so here we've got sort of this culmination of the father giving the inheritance to the son. Um, he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance. I've never really... That ask of me kind of has thrown me off. It's like, did the son have to ask? Like, how does this work? But as I got to thinking about it and, and, and reading it, it's almost as if you would say to, to your child, you can ask of me anything. It, there, there is nothing that I will not give you if you just – if you want it, it's yours. It's almost this um, rhetorical statement. Uh, of course, the son wants his inheritance. But the thing here that we have to see is that I'll give you all of it, all of the nations. And then he, he he sort of remember that rhetorical device of repeating himself in a different way. So I will make the nations your heritage or your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possessions, your possession. So this is what the sons receive. Now, again, this is also why the father laughs. Is because the nations are raging, they're plotting in vain, they're wanting to break themselves away from the anointed, and the father's laughing. He's like, I'm giving him over, I'm giving you over to him. You're trying to run, and I'm giving you him. I'm oh, I can't use my, my pronouns right. I'm giving you over to him. And here, here's here's what why he continues to laugh. Verse nine. The father speaking to the son, "You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel." Yep. Oh. Now, I, oh, um, there there's a there's another thing that sort of always confused me here is. Does the does the son, as a part of the Trinity, the son being God, does he not already have possession and authority over the nations? Well, yes. Uh, and so I was trying to figure out how how we work through this. 
And uh, Calvin makes this statement in his commentary in Psalm 2. Not that, yes, he has all rule and authority as the Son of God in the Trinity for all eternity, but what is being given him here is an exaltation in his human nature as God in the flesh, right? God is setting a man over all the nations, the God-man, right? This, this, isn't, this isn't just like this sort of, oh, you, you had all authority, now we're just kind of saying it out loud. No, no, no. No man has ever had all authority but the Son of Man, right? Who, who humbled himself to the point of being a servant, taking on human form. And what does it say? To the point of death, even death on the cross. And what did God do? He exalted him. He highly exalted him. You're thinking, well, he's already exalted. No, not as a man. Jesus the Christ has been exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. A man who is God. It, it's one of those you chew on and worship with the rest of your life. And you never can exhaust that reality. Um, so I want you to see a couple things, a couple verses for this very terrifying verse. Verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so uh, was it last week I, met, I mentioned the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the New Old Testament, which was in print during Jesus' time? They translated verse 9 in Greek, you shall rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces. So instead of break, it's rule. You might even have that in your um, in your notes there. But let's look at two verses in Revelation. This is very interesting. Revelation two. Revelation two. Verse 26. Now, here's what I want. Here's here's what I want to set in your mind as we look at these two verses and then sort of move on from here. Okay, the Father gives the nations over to Jesus. If you were here this morning, I told you that through Christ, Jesus is actually going to bring the good news to the nations, right? But here. This don't seem like much good news. So, what's going on here? All right, and Revelation two uh, helped me see this a little bit better. Verse twenty six: The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him. Now, this is Jesus speaking to a church. Now, okay, I'll make sure this is the Son giving. Uh, speaking to the church. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Whoa. Okay. So, he, here's where we, can, we can't miss. The, the eternal decree of the Father to the Son is, I will make the nations your inheritance. I will give the earth you, to you as a possession. For those who are united to Christ by faith, you join him in that rule, that authority over the nations. So, how, you know, so we don't have to fear per se. Don't take that word too literally. We don't have to fear per se this this. This uh, king who's going to break us and smash us into pieces with his rod of iron if we're in him. If we're in him, we will be in authority and judge with him over all the nations. Now look what he says back in Revelation 
So to him I will give authority over the nations, verse 27, and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen uh, pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself received authority from my father. Man, that's a promise. That is a promise. Now imagine, who's broke a pot before? Anybody broke a, a vase? I don't think we've had many of those at our house, have we? Oh, we've got two kids raising their hands, so I apparently I wasn't. <laughs> so, man, it, it they shatter, right? That, that's the imagery we have here in verse 9 of Psalm 2. Um, and, and and notice the the rod or the scepter or the staff it's it's unbreakable that's that's the that's the message there the rod of iron right they can set themselves they can plot they can do all this uh, nothing is going to no nothing is going to break his rod of iron with which he will dash them smash them and crash them revelation 11 you're still in revelation Verse 15 through 18. Uh. When the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Sounds a lot like the eternal decree from Psalm 2. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is, who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants. Ah, okay, there it is. Thank you, Lord. There's two there's there are two here within this within this context. The nations that rage and they the wrath comes. There's also the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. All right, so there, there is how he will take apart the nations and, 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 and dash them in pieces. But for those, his servants, his saints, his prophets will be sheltered and will rule with him. Um, let's see. As I was reading verse 9, though, I, I was sort of conflicted because I got to thinking, there's not a nation that doesn't deserve verse 9. Don't you think? Is there a people group that's ever lived that says... Yeah, we've not we've not joined in the plotting and the raging. I don't think there has. There's might have well, I'm not gonna go down that road. The point my point being is as I read that and I thought, okay, as soon as as soon as the resurrection was over, Jesus could have just been like, I'm done. That's it. All authority in heaven and earth has been handed over to me. Here's my rod of iron. I'm over it. I mean, and he justly could have done that. There's not one nation, one group of people that said, oh, but we deserve a chance. And so as I was look, as I was thinking through that, I was thinking, the verse that kept coming to me was uh, God to Moses in Exodus was 29, 30, 31, 32. And then Paul to the Romans, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. 
right? They all, all the nations deserve this wrath. All of them. But I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And that mercy comes out in verse 10. In the warning. A warning from God is mercy. He could have just dashed us all to pieces. But the warning comes. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. I will stop there for a second. The warning here goes to kings and to rulers, those who rule and uh, who have authority over nations and peoples. Now, what we can assume is it's just not for the rulers and the kings, but if he's warning the rulers and the kings, the subjects better take heed as well. Right? Um, But look what he tells the kings, the kings and the rulers. He calls them to wisdom. He calls them to warning. But he tells the kings to serve. He he calls the kings to humility, to worship. That's what worship is. It's service and humility to one of greater authority than you. He calls the rulers to serve Yahweh with fear. Fear the king of kings, is what he tells the kings of this earth. And the only way to true joy, rejoice with trembling, is through fear of the Lord. And he calls kings to fear the Lord and to rejoice with trembling. Now, I read that, and I haven't, now, I'm going to... Put, put myself on the, on the edge here. Psalm 2, the Word of God, tells kings and rulers of the earth to serve the Lord with fear. Now, as we think about a country, a government, and we think, what would be the... What would be... What would be our desire as a as an as a nation? I think it would start with a ruler who served the Lord with fear. You know, we can have conversations and you can get into arguments with people about separation of church and state. And there's a truth, there's a reality between, you know, the in even in Israel, you had a king and a priest. Right, the priest wasn't making all the wasn't making all the rules, and the king wasn't supposed to be doing all the priestly stuff. There was that that existed. But what doesn't ever exist and should never exist concerning the word of God, Psalm two verse ten, is the separation of a ruler and his submission not to God, but to the Son. See, there's a big, there can be a big distinction there, right? God could, we could go a lot of places with God, the word God. But here, verse 12, kiss the Son, right? There might be a translation that says pay homage instead of kiss. Right. Submit to the Son. Who? O kings. O rulers. So I'm just sitting here thinking, maybe maybe we as the church sitting back and just being like, we're going to let things just go the way they go. We're going to see how it works out. I don't, I don't think that would be good, considering we know... Psalm 2, verse 10, 
and 11 and 12. And there's one thing that I, I've I've had in the back of my mind, and my um, great gospel partner of a wife has pressed me many times, and that's we must be involved first and foremost in local government. And I don't mean running for office; I mean understanding what's going on in our local governments and being a prophetic voice that says hey mayor serve the lord with fear rejoice with trembling kiss the sun submit yourself to jesus just something to think about because we know that god's Command is that kings and rulers submit to the authority of Jesus. Just something for us to stew on and pray about, study on, come back to. Kiss the Son, acknowledge Him as who He is. He deserves your worship. If you look at First uh, Kings and Hosea, First Kings nineteen and Hosea thirteen, we won't go there. First Kings nineteen, they're kissing Baal. In Hosea, they're kissing golden calves. And the father says, "Kiss the son." Right, kiss the son. Acknowledge him who deserves your worship. Express your affection and sincere love for him. Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Or that he will not be angry. Because if he be angry, you perish in the way. Why? For his wrath is quickly kindled. I was think, I'm thinking about it in the sense of it's ready to ignite. Don't play with fire. Kiss the son. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Um, Now, one more sort of thought for you to consider. So, O kings, be wise, be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord of fill and trembling. Kiss the son, or he's going to be angry. You'll perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Now, my question is... I didn't really get to write a lot down in this, but I just wanted to put it in front of you. Uh, with that in mind, and then you read something like Romans 1, verse 18. Again, something for us to ponder. Perhaps the condition of our nation isn't necessarily... Nations raging or rebelling, but the revealing of the wrath of God. So remember, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. I'm just going to keep reading. I want you to pay attention. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes. Namely his eternal power and divine nature. Have been clearly perceived. Ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave... Now just think about current events. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their body um, bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their errors. So the question is, is, isn't if we don't repent as a people, will the wrath of God come upon us? Romans 1 might be suggesting that we're already there. Um. I think absolutely. Uh, if you listen to them, you, you can see that they actually believe you know, the things that they say. Just look around, you can see it. Yeah, their their mind is or the uh, uh, reprobate, a reprobate mind. We're going to look at that a little bit too. Oh, yeah. So, this is, I didn't really write anything down after this. I just wanted to think about that. But I think the question um, that always comes up for Christians is the therefore, the what now? What, what now? If, if, this, if this is God's wrath against us, as a rebellious, truth-suppressing people who worship the creature rather than the creator, and he is turning us over to this point where all of this is happening. So now what? I think we better speak up. Perhaps. It's easier said than done. Look at the last sentence in Psalm 2. Blessed are those, or blessed are all who take refuge in Him. We started Psalm 1, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. And all his on his law he meditates day and night. We finish Psalm 2 with blessed are all who take refuge, find shelter and protection in him. So there's a start. There's a start. Um, Psalm 5 verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. Let's sing. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let's do it in joy. As often as possible. Not just here, but at home and in the car. Turn off the radio. I'm not saying you can't listen to secular music. I'm just saying... Are you singing for joy as someone who's blessed in him and taking refuge in him? Fill your home with sounds of singing scripture and the truths of the Bible and the joy of the Lord. Let us sing for joy. That's a good start. Uh, One more, 34, Psalm 34, and this will be it. Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned.
Well, it's good to know since he's got a rod of iron. Since he'll dash them into pieces. Ultimately, what are we what are we finding? What are we hiding? What are we hiding? Un, what are we? Ugh, sorry. What are we being guarded from when we find ourselves in the refuge of the in the Lord as a refuge? His anger. His wrath. And when we do that, we find ourselves happy. And as biblical as that can be, happy. Right? Satisfied. Filled up. In the Lord. Listen, I don't, man. I, I don't know what... Tomorrow holds, uh, you know, what a year from now holds, um, 10 years from now. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, we, we, we talk a lot about the end being right around the corner, but I heard someone say the other day, what happens if 10,000 years from now and people look back at us as part of the early church? I mean... We don't know. But what we do know is the Word of God. And I think Brother Dan has told us in First Thessalonians is just be prepared. And be prepared by, uh, as I heard John Piper say, by going to work and going to church. Do it for the glory of God. Right. Any other thoughts or questions? It kind of brought me in mind of uh, Isaiah when we were talking about this. Isaiah 1 and 